Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. This week, of course, we have some real election results, results of voting, the New Hampshire primary. We also have an expert on all things that could go wrong on Election Day in November, starting with a cyber attack on the power grid. Rick Hassan has been worrying about that. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first, Bernie is now the front runner. Trump Watch starts right now. So where do we stand after the first primary? For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let us review the New Hampshire results. Bernie won. All the headlines said it. 26% of the vote. Pete Buttigieg came in second with 24%. Amy Klobuchar was a surprise third with 20%. Elizabeth Warren far behind with 9%. And Joe Biden, the front runner just, what, two weeks ago, uh, got a devastating 8%. Joe has run for president three times. He has never won a primary. He's never come in second. He's never even come in third, thanks to Gail Collins for fine figuring that out. Uh, but what's your analysis of the New Hampshire results? Let's start with Bernie. Bernie obviously is able to uh, turn out his base, and I think he has some uh, appeal beyond his base, but he hasn't demonstrated yet in a, in a crowded field how, how much that appeal actually extends. I mean, he's doing better than anyone else, but if you uh, consolidate the vote totals of candidates to his right, which is pretty much all of the Democratic candidates, they eclipse his total. Now, that's not to say that if uh, those those uh, voters went uh, into an election in which their preferred candidate wasn't there, that uh, some of them wouldn't go for Bernie anyway. There's always been a significant share of Biden voters, for instance, uh, at least in the earlier poll and polls when Biden <laughs> appeared to have voters uh, who had Bernie as their second choice. Uh, he is, uh, to use the terminology of the political analyst supreme ron brownstein he is definitely a, a beer track candidate <laughs> he, he he did very well among voters uh with uh, incomes under fifty thousand dollars a year it got in the high 30s there conversely pete Buttigieg did well among voters with incomes in excess of a hundred thousand dollars a year and uh you know the biden supporters tend to be in that first category of the not that much money uh and not in the second category so bernie has a uh, real strength obviously among the young uh, obviously not among the, the elderly so far and uh, that leaves him in good position to keep coming in first so long as there are a lot of other candidates in the race well yes. we don't know quite how he will fare if uh, the moderate uh, group of candidates, so-called, begins to winnow more than it has. I should add one other thing. While Bernie won, uh, obviously, almost just about half of the voters under 35, the winner of uh, elderly voters wasn't Buttigieg. It was uh, Amy Klobuchar, who was the uh, surprise of the evening. Uh, She did best among uh, among older voters. So uh, Buttigieg, who, you know, proclaims himself the middle-class 
candidate from the middle western city apparently also is only doing that well among middle-aged voters or whatever that may be worth. Well, we definitely have to talk about Amy and Mayor Pete, but first I just want to stick with Bernie for a minute. My worry about Bernie's campaign is that he did better four years ago. Four years ago in New Hampshire, Bernie got almost 60% of the vote. This year he got 26%. Four years ago he got about 150,000 votes. This year he got something like, what, 72,000 or something like that, half as many. And there was a similar difference in Iowa for the Bernie vote from four years ago to today. Bernie's strategy, of course, is to greatly expand the electorate. That's the revolution. We need to bring in all these people who haven't voted before, who are, you know, the base for progressive politics, potentially. But they don't seem to be rallying to Bernie, at least not in Iowa or New Hampshire. Can you reassure me on this score, or, or maybe not? Partially. For one thing, Bernie in uh, 2016 was only running against one candidate, Hillary Clinton. There was no one else uh, who was a serious candidate. Now he has four serious opponents, has had four serious opponents, and that total will grow to five once Michael Bloomberg starts appearing on ballot. So it, it stands to reason that he would uh, have a lower a share of the vote. Uh, as for turnout, New Hampshire finally actually had more people voting uh, in the Democratic primary this year than in uh, 2016 or even in uh, 2008, although that's partly because there was no, re- you know, contested Republican primary. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you, they have an open primary in, in New Hampshire. So uh, independents uh, who wanted to vote, uh, there was almost no point they're voting in the Republican primary, so they voted in uh, the Democratic primary, and perhaps even a few uh, truly disconsolate Republicans did as well, <laughs> although I can't imagine many. In terms of the sh- lower share of the vote, that's uh, that's explainable up to a point. The question is, as the field winnows, as it gets smaller, as I, it is certainly bound to do after March 3rd, uh, which is Super Tuesday, when, when 14 states vote, how will Bernie do then, uh, running against fewer people who are to his right? Uh, and we don't know the answer to that, and the definitive answer won't really be clear until uh, you know, maybe midnight on March 3rd, March 4th. Well, the mainstream media needs something new to make news, and what was new in New Hampshire was Amy Klobuchar getting 20% of the vote. Can she... Uh, take over from Biden as, uh, you know, the candidate of the so-called moderates? Actually, to a certain degree, I think she can. If you look at where former Biden voters were going in New Hampshire, and also former Elizabeth Warren voters who tanked uh, just as spectacularly as, uh, as Biden, a lot of them went to, uh, to Amy Klobuchar. Uh, and I have to say, while politically I am uh, not really uh, putting her uh, among my favorites, she had this terrific impact, obviously, from her performance in the Friday night debate, which I think she only added to in her uh, acceptance speech on Tuesday night, which really, I think, differs from those of the other Democratic candidates, no matter where their ideological positioning, in that it had, I think, a more personal touch in two ways. I mean, she really goes after Trump on the one metric uh, he can't stand up on it all. That is sort of as a human being. She uh, focuses on his lack of responsibility and his lack of empathy. And I think that's a potent pitch. 
So I wouldn't be surprised to see her continuing to rise in the so-called moderate lane, picking up some uh, Elizabeth Warren and Biden support, and uh, keeping Pete Buttigieg from um, really, you know, I mean, she she certainly blocked blocked him from doing better on uh, on Tuesday in New Hampshire, and I think she's going to continue to do that, if not uh, at some point surpass him. Well, switching to the the national scene right now, uh, Bernie, for the first time, came in first in a national poll of Democrats and Democratic leading independents. He was the preferred candidate of 25%. Uh, this was a national poll before New Hampshire. So Bernie right. has come in first with the vote total in Iowa, first with the vote total in New Hampshire, first in a, the, for the first time in a national poll. And so the attacks from the Democratic establishment are getting vicious, we should expect. Michael right. Kazin reminded us in the New York Times today, any outsider who challenges the party establishment is going to get a lot of resistance and fighting back. We see what's going to happen within the Democratic Party. We're getting a glimpse of it now. Tom Friedman wrote in his New York Times op-ed column on Wednesday a, a fiery attack on Bernie. He said, Bernie Sanders wants to take away the private health care coverage of 150 million Americans and replace it with a gigantic, untested Medicare for All program, which he'd also extend to illegal immigrants. Please, Democrats, Tom Friedman says, don't tell me you need Sanders' big, ill-thought-through, revolutionary grand schemes to get inspired and mobilized for this election. You want a revolution? I'll give you a revolution. Four more years of Donald Trump, close quote. And then Tom Friedman says he wants Michael Bloomberg. You know, I would argue that Medicare actually has had a pretty good test since 1965 when it was enacted. I wouldn't call it untested. And, and I've heard that other countries have national health programs that also have been tested. Yes, and given that Tom Friedman was at least at one point the designated foreign affairs columnist of, uh, of the New York Times, you would think he would uh, remember that, but uh, uh, I, I guess not. He is the epitome of presumably Democratic columnist who has been uh, very comfortable with the more conservative side of, uh, of the Clinton and Obama presidencies. And certainly, you know, he, he came to prominence promoting globalization and that, you know, guaranteeing us that uh, a trade agreement with China would democratize it. Uh, and, you know, th and this gets us really to uh, what I consider to be Bloomberg's yeah. seal, which yeah. is that, first of all, other than Henry Kissinger, there is no figure in American public life who has promoted uh, our doing business with China more than Michael Bloomberg. And in fact, Bloomberg hosts a, a listing service for, for bonds, which includes about 160 Chinese companies, most of them government-owned. And, and so he's you know literally financially linked to the Chinese government, which he, again, more than anyone except Henry Kissinger in American public life, has defended. Now, how is that going to play with uh, those swing voters who saw their factories go to China in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania? So, look, I mean, the Democratic establishment is certainly right when it says Bernie may have political vulnerabilities going into November, but who among the Democrats doesn't? And I would argue that Bloomberg's vulnerabilities in swing states 
actually exceed Bernie's. Um, you know, and I was, I was amused in the same Quinnipiac poll that uh, had Bernie leading among the Democrats that you just cited. Uh, they also ran off uh, each of the uh, Democratic candidates against Trump and saw how they would do. And against Trump, uh, the two candidates who did best were one Bernie Sanders and one Michael Bloomberg. Each of them got 51 percent, while Trump was getting 42 and 43 percent. So, you know, I mean, that, that suggests to me that socialist, capitalist, you know, okay, but, you know, we're voting against Donald Trump. And uh, so I'm not, I'm not too convinced that Bernie's weaknesses are uh, either unique or any greater uh, than those of other candidates, and Michael Bloomberg perhaps most especially. And another voice of the liberal establishment at the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof, he took a, a different route in his column on Thursday. He says he's worrying. He's worrying that uh, Sanders's proposals have no chance of becoming law, particularly, I'm re- quoting here, particularly if the Senate stays in Republican ha- hands, if there is to be progress on health care, college affordability, or income inequality, or the appointment of judges, it will come through the election of a new president with hefty coattails, the president who can get Senate candidates elected to create a Democratic majority in the Senate. So he concludes, a candidate's precise positions on things like Medicare for all matter less than his or her coattails. And he tells us, if you want universal health coverage, a fair tax system, action on climate change, then you should focus on not only who can beat Trump, but who can help Democrat candidates for the Senate in swing states and who can help Democrats like Doug Jones, the endangered Democratic senator from Alabama. Is Bernie Sanders able to do this? And Kristoff says, I don't think he can. Uh, he's a socialist. He's old. He says he's going to greatly increase turnout, but he didn't really increase his turnout uh, at all in Iowa and uh, New Hampshire. And Nick Kristoff concludes, Amy Klobuchar is the one who has the best coattails, who can not only defeat Trump, but win a Democratic uh, Senate. What do you think of Nick Kristoff's arguments? God himself can't help Doug Jones win re-election in in Alabama. And the the clear indication of that was when Doug Jones voted to convict Donald Trump uh, in the Senate trial, the Senate impeachment trial. I mean, that was not the act of someone who even remotely anticipated winning re-election. To get to the broader point, <laughs> we, we have no way. I mean, Nick, you know, what is Nick Kristoff's track record on assessing coattails of possible presidential candidates 10 months before the actual presidential election? It's not good. It's not bad. It's non-existent. There's absolutely no way to handicap this. And if, for instance... Michael Bloomberg is weaker than Bernie Sanders in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. I would assume his coattails are weaker than Bernie Sanders in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. I mean, there's just no way to determine this. I, I'm not, you know, there's no way to, to prove Kristoff uh, either right or wrong. What you can do is say he's presumptuous as all hell, 
to be making this kind of prediction based on precisely nothing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I want to go back uh, in closing here to this the latest national poll, which you cited, the Quinnipiac poll. It showed that any of the top six Democrats could beat Trump right now, actually by a lot. Mayor Pete and Elizabeth Warren beat Trump right now by five points. Amy Klobuchar beats him by six. Joe Biden, in this poll, beat him by seven. And as you said, uh, Bernie and Bloomberg beat him by eight and nine. Trump's approval rating is up a little this week. He's reached 44%. Most presidents don't want to run with only 44% support, and he's never been any higher than that. He's still the most unpopular president in modern history. And the budget he announced just announced he wants to cut a, a trillion dollars from health care and destroy the Affordable Care Act, but the Affordable Care Act is 10 points more popular than Donald Trump. All this suggests Trump is very beatable, and uh, it may not be that hard uh, for whoever gets the nomination. Or do you think I'm too optimistic here? Uh, I, I think it will be a challenge, no matter who the Democrats nominate. But uh, the kind of panic we're seeing in Democratic uh, uh, pundit and uh, you know, establishment ranks is ridiculous because it ignores all of the data that you just cited. And it's mainly about their own resistance to, uh, to Bernie than it really is about prospects in November. That's what's uh, so absurd about the kind of things that uh, Nick Kristoff and Tom Friedman are writing. Well, uh, we got a little breathing space here before the Nevada caucuses and the South Carolina primary. Your, your final thoughts at this moment? Well, before Nevada caucuses, we're going to have one more candidate debate, and this is going to be the first one in which Michael Bloomberg will come out from behind the curtain. And, you know, I, I always thought it was uh, silly for some on the left to protest his inclusion in the debates. He's all over TV already in prepackaged propaganda commercials, what he probably isn't nearly as appealing in is uh, appearing as a human being before other human beings in real time, which the debate will compel him to do. His uh, Achilles heel is uh, the unpackaged version of himself. So I think that may uh, redound to the advantage of a number of, uh, of candidates going forward. We're moving on to two states that have significant minority populations, Latinos in Nevada, and African-Americans in South Carolina, uh, to whom Buttigieg and Klobuchar are, are largely unknown quantities. So it's going to be a different electorate, a more representative electorate of the Democratic electorate as a whole. There is a distinct possibility. Bernie can do very well in all four of the first states, and that would give him even more momentum going into Super Tuesday. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch Podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. 
Democrats are full of anxiety about the November election. Whoever they support, they wake up worried that somehow Donald Trump will not be defeated on November 3rd. There are many ways that the voting process could be sabotaged, that dirty tricks could twist the outcome, that elections could go wrong. And for that, we turn to Rick Hassan. He's the expert. He's a colleague of mine at UC Irvine, where he's Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science. His opinion pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, and Slate, and he writes the Election Law blog. His new book is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. I spoke with Rick Hassan the day after the Iowa caucuses and asked whether what happened in Iowa was a disaster or just a delay. Well, I think it's a disaster. If Iowa Democratic Party officials had announced it's going to take two days to count the votes, uh, then I think everyone's expectations would have been different, and we just would have recognized that sometimes things take time. And, of course, they were using new technology, and they were also using uh, you know, a new, new set of vote totals, three different vote totals uh, in the election. And so had it just been a delay, it would be fine. But instead, we had the expectation we were going to get the results, and then there's an unexplained delay, then all of a sudden we're told that there are quality control issues, which sounds kind of vague in corporate speak. And then, you know, we ultimately find out that there were all kinds of problems with how the results were reported. And that, of course, created an opening for people like uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager to claim that the system was being rigged, that there was some kind of stealing of the election maybe to hurt Bernie Sanders, who Trump would like to run against. And so I think it was a disaster, and it didn't have to be this way. Until I read your book, I never worried about some other potential disasters. I never worried about a cyber attack on the power grid on Election Day. I never worried about massive blackouts in the big cities that the Democrats need to win, like Philadelphia or Miami or Detroit. Could that happen? So I think technologically it could happen. Uh, there was very good reporting by the Wall Street Journal on how we believe the Russians have been able to capture passwords and get into systems that control electrical power. We also know that the Russians actually launched cyber attacks against Ukraine back in 2015, and they were able to bring down the power for a certain number of hours and even locked out the system that was supposed to override that kind of attack. So I think we're technologically vulnerable. We're also vulnerable in terms of our political and legal system in that most states do not have a good plan B if there's some kind of terrorist attack or cyber attack or natural disaster which prevents voting in all or part of a state on a presidential election day. We don't know what the rules would be. There would be fighting over that. It could go to court. You know, and the courts have divided on party lines. So you can kind of easily imagine the nightmare scenarios, a lot of which would be preventable if we had rules in place to deal with this kind of attack. Well, just to stick with the cyber attack for one more minute, I hope that people in charge of cybersecurity for the power grid on Election Day uh, have read your book. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, the good news is after my book went to print, there was a story that U.S. cybersecurity officials are actually doing some kind of simulations to game out uh, how to try to deal with such a situation. So the issue is certainly on the radar. Uh, you know, the problem is it might not be that. It could be something else. Uh, 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 and we're trying to take preparations so that the things that happened in 2016 don't happen again, but then we're fighting the last war, and we're not thinking about what might be new and destructive in 2020. Another thing that keeps my friends up at night is worrying that the loser, Donald Trump, would 
refused to concede and instead argued that the election was stolen or rigged, especially if there was something like what happened in Iowa this week. One possibility is not that Trump refuses to concede, but that he declares victory because the vote totals on election night might have him ahead in a swing state like Pennsylvania. We know that Pennsylvania is going to be using new rules involving absentee ballots. You used to have to have an excuse to cast them. You no longer need to have to have an excuse to cast them. Election officials are already warning that it could take days for those ballots to be counted. We also know that those later ballots have tended in other states to be heavily Democratic. And so we saw in California, for example, in 2018, ballot totals shift from Republican leads to Democratic leads. And so Trump could claim victory. He could say that the, uh, he won the election in Pennsylvania, if that's the key swing state in 2020. And ultimately, the election officials will say, no, he didn't. And we could have a protracted fight. We could even see Congress get involved if there are competing slates of electors to the Electoral College sent over to Congress. It could get very messy. And I should say, none of the things we're talking about are likely. But I think just like with a nuclear meltdown, where there's a small risk of a catastrophe, you really need to think about all of these contingencies and ask what you could do to try to minimize the risk of these things happening. Well, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about Republican threats to voting and the way vote suppression in the red states has been their their strategy for a couple of decades, making it harder to register and, and to vote. But you say there are big problems in voting in the big cities controlled by Democrats. Fairness requires that we ask you to explain. So I think, you know, one issue is, are there deliberate attempts to try to make it harder to register and vote? And I think there's no question that in some Republican states they have passed laws and imposed policies that have been aimed at making it harder to register and to vote. Some of those have been more successful than others in terms of effect. But we do know that incompetence in election administration is an equal opportunity problem. Both Democrats and Republicans who control elections might act incompetently. Just look at the recent Iowa example. This was run by the uh, Iowa Democratic Party, so there's no Republicans to blame for this. Uh, what happened to the Democrats this week in the election uh, in Iowa? Uh, and so uh, it turns out that we get a lot of attention paid to poor election administration in big American cities controlled by Democrats, not because Democrats are more likely than Republicans to be incompetent, but because that's where the votes are. And if it's a close election and there's a big problem and you're looking to figure out what's going on, attention is going to focus to the big cities. So I talked, for example, about Broward County, Florida, and Brenda Snipes and how she ran the elections down there, and some other examples of big cities, the city of Detroit, when it ran the 2016 election, and how poorly they ran that election, that they couldn't even conduct a recount that Jill Stein had tried to pay for. So we have had these situations where it's Democrats running the show, and they're just running the show very badly. And let's talk about what the Republicans call ballot security measures. Sounds good. Uh, what were ballot security measures and why are they coming back? Back in the early 1980s, the Democratic Party sued the Republican Party over measures that the Republicans advertised as trying to ensure the security of the vote, ballot integrity, which sounds like a good thing, but they were actually efforts to intimidate minority voters uh, at the polling place. For example, there were things like sending off-duty police officers in uniforms to patrol around uh, minority 
dominated polling places. And in 1982, the Republican National Committee agreed it wouldn't engage in any of these activities. It signed a, a court order. It agreed to what is called a consent decree. And that consent decree had been extended and had been in place until 2017, when the courts finally lifted it. The Democrats argued that Donald Trump and his activities in this area engaged in a kind of vote suppression. And the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit agreed that Trump had engaged in some activities that could be seen as trying to suppress the vote, but said that wasn't the RNC. The RNC is an independent entity for this purpose and is now free to engage in these activities. It's free to engage in legitimate ballot security activities uh, for purposes of securing the vote. So we'll see what happens in 2020, but this is going to be the first election where that consent decree is gone, as are the protections of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, those clearance provisions, which said that states with a history of racial discrimination in voting had to get permission from the federal government before doing things like shutting down a polling place. The Supreme Court got rid of that uh, voter protective provision in its 2013 opinion in Shelby County versus Holder. You write in your book, Election Meltdown, about something called the Election Administrator's Prayer. What is it? Well, so the best hope that none of what I'm describing is going to come to pass is not that we're going to get our act together. I hope we will, but it's not that. It's instead that the election won't be close. Because if the election is not close, this is the election administrator's prayer. Lord, let this election not be close. If that's what we're uh, banking on, it's because if the election uh, returns are so overwhelming in one direction or another, even if there have been some attempts to mess with it, or even if there's been some incompetence, it's not going to uh, be determinative in the outcome and people will move on. Uh, right? It's not since Bush versus Gore back almost 20 years ago that we had a problem as serious as to call a presidential election into question. We've had other smaller elections that have been called into question. Uh, so let's hope that whatever happens in uh, 2020, that it's not a close election and we can squeak through even with the problems that seem to be on the scene. So you've told us about about many of the ways the November election could be sabotaged, undermined, uh, distorted. Thank you for that. What are the top two or three things that could be done between today and November 3rd to reduce these threats to American democracy? Well, some of the things are uh, beyond our control, cybersecurity issues that are really in the hands of the government. But uh, putting that aside, you know, one of the things is the role of the news media. I think there has to be an education function to let people understand that, that we may not know who the president is uh, on election night. It might take a few days and that it's normal for vote totals to change and for vote totals to shift from one candidate to another. I think managing people's expectations is important. And it's also important now, with about nine months before the election, that state election administrators are looking for those weak links, those places that have had perennial problems, and do what they need to in terms of poll worker training, in terms of adequate uh, resources, in terms of voting machines that have uh, the ability to conduct a recount, to hand-marked paper ballots is kind of the gold standard here. There's lots that we could put in place before November so that the, some of those risks can be uh, uh, mitigated. One last thing, a personal question. My friends wake up full of dread and go to bed full of anxiety about what could happen on November 3rd. You are a professional on, on the subject. How bad are you feeling right now about November 3rd? 
Well, I spend my days talking about it now, so I'm quite concerned. But, you know, I tend to be a worrier, and I'm hoping that the worrying is for nothing. I'm hoping that Election Day will be a relatively quiet day for me, because when people are calling me, it means uh, something is going wrong. Rick Hessen, his new book is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Rick, thanks for giving us the bad news about elections in America. Thank you. that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>